Welcome to Sloppy Spoilers with your host, DT2. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Sloppy Spoilers. I'm your host, David Taylor II. I'd like to welcome my co-host. Welcome to David Nemesis Howard, Big Daddy Pimp and Comic Writer. Woo! <laughs> All right, ASAP Comics. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey everybody! I excited to be here and talking Mandalorian again. Uh, you can find me at Nemesis FC2 on Twitter at Nemesis FC2. Uh, let's get going. All right. We got a little uh, salty spoilers. I mean, sloppy spoilers. So. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. That's an inside joke, folks. I'll explain that one later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Welcome to Steve Shaving Sellers. What's up, Steve? I'm uh, doing all right. Uh, congratulations to Nemesis. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, doing pretty well. Uh, I am one with a force, and the force is with me. Nice. <laughs> Awesome. Where can we find you on Twitter? Yeah, you can just find me at uh, Shadewing. Uh, it's uh, spelled pretty much the way it sounds uh, on Twitter. And uh, yeah, be, be glad to interact with anybody. All right. This episode might turn into salty spoilers because <laughs> we had a bit of a fire rant mode last night, which was good and cathartic because you need that sometimes. Uh, but we're going to talk about The Mandalorian Season 2, Episodes 3 and 4, starting with Episode 3 entitled The Heiress. So to give you a quick recap, Mando finally gets to the planet, the Frog Lady's planet, and uh, they have a... Uh, uh, it's named Trask, by the way. The frog lady has a reunion with her husband. And the uh, Razor Crest is so toe up. Again, it shouldn't be working at all, but we'll just let that one go. So they turn it over to some Mon Calamari mechanics to get it done, to get the, the repairs done. Because first, Mando tries to put Grogu or Baby Yoda into like the equivalent of a Jeffrey's tube and have him fix. Uh, you know, the wires and, and rewire everything, and they can't even communicate. So that's kind of a bust. So then he has no choice but to uh, to leave it in the hands of the Mon Calamari, and they promise to make it fly. Notice they don't say they're going to fix it. So <laughs> then uh, Mandel sets off to explore Trask, and so the Frog Lady gets back with uh, her husband, and they're all happy. I still can't get over that she didn't notice that some of her eggs were missing. I just, that's when I can't let that one slip. That doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, so uh, also the Mon Calamari do something really funny. It seems like they serve squid in one of the ends. That seems rather cannibalistic, but we'll talk about that. So, uh, so uh, <laughs> eventually what happens is eventually what happens is uh, we also meet the corn and you know that you should know the corn from the Clone Wars and uh, but you don't have to you don't have to watch Clone Wars to enjoy this episode but it's uh, it's very much steeped in established Star Wars lore now the next thing that happens is uh, I thought you know they would have seen this coming a mile away 
But long story short, the Quarrens tried to trap Mando so they could take his armor. So they put him, it's like a combination of a, a raptor pit and a sarlacc pit, but they put him in a big kraken pit. And so <laughs> they think the kraken's going to eat him, and somehow they're going to pry the armor out of the creature's mouth. I haven't figured out how they're going to do that. So anyway, we meet the kind of the point of the episode after that, because we have three people show up in Mandalorian uh, armor to rescue Nando. And that's where we meet uh, Koska, Axe, and Bo-Katan. Now, you should also know Bo-Katan from Clone Wars and Rebels. Also, Katie Sackhoff, the one who plays Bo-Katan, she actually voices Bo-Katan in Clone Wars and Rebels. So it's it's really something when an actor gets to be both the both voice and the face of a character. So I'm sure she enjoyed that. Mando does something uh, right for once and uh, leaves the kid with uh, the frog people. And we have to wonder, we have to hope that after watching the miracle of birth, maybe the kid uh, doesn't want to eat him anymore, but we don't really get an answer to that question. Uh, anyway, so the name of this episode is The Heiress. And so just to sum up the rest of it quite briefly, Bo-Katan uh, asks Mando to help her with a task. And as they go and accomplish the task, she kind of unfolds her plan in segments. And long story short, her goal is to reinstall herself or install herself as the leader of Mandalore because she sees uh, Jin Jaren as a religious zealot. She sees the Mandalorians that we know as a sect, a cult, an offshoot, because the first thing she does when she rises is take her helmet off. So she's found what she calls a different way. So she's looking at being a Mandalorian much more from a political and governmental standpoint, while our Mandalorian is looking at it from a religious uh, commitment uh, level of zealotry standpoint. And so that contrast is very clear and very interesting. So finally, uh, after a very good fight, Bo-Katan finally says, uh, tells Mando where he can go to find a Jedi, and that Jedi is Ahsoka Tano. Uh, Ahsoka Tano, you should also know, as she's a major player from the Clone Wars. Uh, so that's basically it. Uh, the Razor Quest has been sort of repaired by the Mon Calamari, but, you know, again, if you know anything about Archie Comics, it's like, you know, Archie's old jalopy. <laughs> if you don't know anything about Archie Comics, you can watch Riverdale, because he had a jalopy on Riverdale, too. A barely held together car, held together by spitting wire and prayer. But anyway... So that's the general overview of the, ep uh, of the episode. So I'm going to throw out a few thoughts, and then I'm going to turn it over to my co-host to hear their thoughts. Um, Excuse me. This episode, I really, no problem. I really like the way it ties into the larger Star Wars universe. It really integrates. It does something I like. It integrates the animated segments with the live-action segments. And uh, at least in a way, it does. But I mean, it's the same characters and we've known them before if you watch Clone Wars and Rebels. And um, I uh, like the fact that the special effects hold up. And the, this show looks more like Star Wars than anything we've gotten since. And I mean, that's literally true. I'm talking about the first three movies, the original trilogy. 
everything about this show has that aesthetic. And just about everything else has either been heavy CGI or or impossible crowded world, you know, four million star destroyers in the sky, just stupid stuff. But this one actually looks like it's a part of the Star Wars universe, and that's something it's still pulling off well. So I thought it was a really good episode. Um, it's interesting to find some Mandalorians that are from a different kind of cut from a different cloth. And uh, that was the most shock, or one of the most shocking moments when Bo-Katan takes her helmet off. Uh, it sets up kind of the difference between them. So let me hear your original thoughts, and then we're going to get into specifics. Start with Nemesis. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, I'm going to go straight to your point about the look of the show. Um, I actually uh, found a documentary on the making of The Mandalorian this past week. And I was, if this show hadn't already won me over, it did after I watched this documentary because John Favreau and Dave Filoni spent, convinced Disney to spend more money to go back and do the special effects as far as uh, the models of the ships and the explosions and everything the old way the ILM way from the first three movies. And so what they did is they cut out most of the CGI and went back and built models of all of the ships. All of that is exactly the way they did it in Star Wars and Empire and Return of the Jedi. And that made so much more sense to me once I watched that video and realized this is why this feels like original Star Wars. And I love it. So I just wanted to get that out right off the bat. Um, anybody who's listened to the, the last episode knows that uh, I love Mandalorians, always have. And so anything that gives me more lore about, you know, Mandalore and the Mandalorian culture uh, is just great in my book. So this uh, revelation that Bo-Katan has a different way of looking at Mandalore culture and what is acceptable and what is the way. Uh, I just ate that up. I loved it. I already love Bo-Katan's character and that character development and everything to do with the Darksaber and all that from uh, Rebels. And then when she appeared in Clone Wars as well. Um, I think it was very interesting watching this. Uh, just on a side note real quick, uh, I don't want to go on off on a huge tangent again, but I have to say that uh, interestingly... Uh, Katie Sackhoff just, I think she needs to be coronated the queen of science fiction at this point. She <laughs> is in everything that I love. I love the, you know, as much as I love the original Battlestar Galactica, I love the, the, the remake that she was in when I didn't think I would. Uh, she's here as Bo-Katan, which I think is great. And, all right, I'm going to make another admission to all of you out there. I have a man crush on, uh... Vin Diesel and especially Riddick. Mm -hmm. So her appearance in Riddick was just one of the best damn things I've ever seen in my entire life. And I love her in that show. And I hear they're doing another sequel and I hope she makes another appearance. So yeah. I'm going to sort of throw that out there. Huh? And it's just, if you didn't see it, she was also a key villain in the unfortunately short lived bionic woman series that got killed mm -hmm. by the writer's strike. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, Katie Sackhoff right. was great. 
that's right. Yeah, and 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 if you really want to shock her, go on IMDb and check out what the actress looks like who played the frog lady. It is <laughs> just mind blowing, and that's all I'll say. So, with that, I'll wrap up my comments. So. Okay. Uh, very good comments and very good point about why the look of the show is so authentic. And I, you know, that is just, that can't be overstated that that was the right move on their part. And, and we can definitely see it uh, as the fans. And it just makes all the difference in the world. No green screen and all that miles and all. Anyway, so go ahead, Steve. Let me hear your overall opening thoughts. Yeah, when I first saw this episode, uh, the first time I watched it, um, I was kind of looking to see uh, what how they would treat Bo-Katan, because I'm a huge fan of uh, Club Rebels and Clone Wars. So uh, I'm like, OK, yeah, she's coming back. This is awesome. Uh, but I also had questions because my question was, OK, we've seen her take her helmet off before uh, in those shows. Um, so uh, how is uh, this uh, going to connect uh, to the Mandalorian's way and um, you know, it, it, whether, um, you know, Mando's own code and where that comes from? Because clearly it's different. The episode acknowledged that it explained it. It explained it perfectly within the uh, what the lore that we know about and just kind of built on it. And it made something different and new by having Mando encounter this woman and her followers. And I loved that. I thought that uh, bringing in Katie Sackoff uh, when she had voiced uh, Bo-Katan before was brilliant. Letting And she really does look the part. Absolutely does look the part. And she looks like the age that she would be um, at this time because uh, she had been around since um, like at least the Siege of Mandalore and maybe a few years before that because uh, she's the sister of uh, Satine, uh, the Duchess uh, that had been there previously. So there is all so you definitely can see a continuity. But then Dave Filoni being involved with all of these things would brought, would have brought in all of his understanding of continuity, all of his understanding of. Uh, the lore created by George uh, and all of these things to create um, his story here. And everything just absolutely fits perfectly. Um, I, I really quite like that. Um, I thought that everything that they, the, the, and the, you can definitely see the way that uh, Mando and Bo-Katan differ. He is very much a, um, I guess you could say he is a religious jello, but he's also a traditionalist. You know, he respects the traditional values of Mandalore. She's somebody who um, is less uh, oriented with the uh, traditions and more about, OK, I am going to get this done however I have to get this done, you know, because I've seen the wider galaxy in a way that you haven't. Um, and so, yeah, she'll cut these corners, you know, but at the same time, she does adhere to the Mandalorian code in various ways. You know, she does, um, you know, this is the way is a big part of her uh, existence as well, to a certain extent. Uh, but it's nice to see, you know, the 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 contrast between uh, Din Djarin and Bo-Katan um, as they basically go through this mission. I mean, the, the setup, the plot setup is pretty standard. Um, it's you know, it's basically what you would expect. But what makes it interesting is the character interactions and the culture clash between uh, Mando's, um, you know, child of the watch mentality and and the way of Bo-Katan and, her, and the clan Krees. Uh, so all of that really came together and it was really excellent. And, you know, as somebody who's a fan of like all of the stuff and the expanded stuff, um, everything came together. 
Um, the only thing that I actually kind of had an issue with is uh, I would have thought that Mando suits would have had breathable air, <laughs> at least like a, a temporary air supply or something. So drowning him shouldn't have taken that that long. But um, yeah, whatever. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it because it was fun to watch this episode. <laughs> we'll allow it. Uh, go ahead, Bracey. Uh, give me your general thoughts about this episode. Yeah, let's see. I'm going to... Uh break this down a little bit first i'm going to go into special effects i haven't seen the uh documentary that nemesis saw which pleases me greatly uh because the special effects of the first season were already pretty spectacular i thought especially for a tv show but i did see a documentary on that uh they created this giant dome projector they call the volume and a lot of these shots that i thought were on set locations were actually 3d environments and because you have this 360 dome, all of your lighting is perfect. You don't have to do any green screen. You don't have to do any uh, funky things with the lighting. The lighting is there where you want it and where you need it. And this also gives you very accurate reflections in Mando's suit, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, half the time, uh, like they would only have like half a razor crest to fit inside the dome. And the other half of it was digital. And it was just an amazing innovation of technology. If you get a chance to uh, watch this on Disney Plus or some other source, do so. It's just phenomenal seeing what they do. But finding out that uh, Favreau, who's a big fan of uh, practical effects, is going back in and doing even more practical effects than he's already got in is just, yeah, I, I can't get enough of this guy. You know, kudos to him and kudos to Filoni because uh, Filoni is the master of continuity. Which uh, brings me to my second point. Although, as a quick aside, squids are, in fact, cannibalistic. So there you go. The more you know. Well, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. True fact. If, uh, if you fish for, like, Humboldt squid and you injure one, the others will eat it. <laughs> I watch a lot of oh. Discovery Channel. What can I say? Uh, okay. As for the Filoni, and, like, uh, the thing about Filoni is he is really the lore guy. He is, like, the guy who is, you know, worshipping at the altar of George Lucas. And I love the fact that he ties all these things together. One of uh, one thing I really loved uh, about uh, Rogue One, which I thought was uh, one of the best uh, Star Wars films since the uh, original set and the uh, prequels, was the fact that they had the um, the uh, I can't remember his name right now, the Forest Whitaker's ter- character, the quote unquote terrorist, Saul Guerrero. Uh, yes, thank you, Saul Guerrero, who appeared in uh, Rebels, also appeared in that film, and I love that tying together. I love it because I love world building. I love to see this connectivity. Now I have a few friends of mine who cannot stand the fact that like, oh my God, and they're they're running into Luke Skywalker, they're gonna run into Boba Fett, they're running into Ahsoka Tano, like this person. It's a big universe. It's like, yeah, but you know, you gotta have a little fan service in there and it gives us this connective tissue for the overall story. So I'm all in fan I'm I'm all in favor of that as long as they don't become quote unquote the stars of this show because this is about the Mandalorian's journey. And speaking of which uh, going back into the mythology, we now have three sects of Mandalorians that we're aware of because of this. We now have the Children of the Watch, uh, who are very much a religious sect. And as you uh, as you mentioned, DT, uh, uh, Katie Sackhoff is primarily she's they're all Mandalorians are clearly warriors, but she is a political warrior. Whereas if you look at Death Watch, uh, led by Pre Vizsla, 
were very much the old school like uh, warrior conquerors of Mandalore. They were trying to bring that sort of thing back. So I love all of this new uh, this new mythology and this tying of the old and the new things together. And uh, it's like a nemesis uh, or, or Steve, one of you guys said it's like a it's the interactions between this guy who's clearly almost been like a cloistered monk. And now he's being uh, he's experiencing this wider world. And like, what do you mean you guys take off your helmet? That's no, that that sort of thing doesn't happen. Well, you guys are you're learning different ways, different ways, indeed. Although. Um, what else was I going to say? Uh, I had something. I lost it. Guess it's not important. Let's move on. All right. Now I want to key in on some of that stuff Bracey said before I throw out my next point. You mentioned uh, uh, fan service or fanboy service or something like that. Now, I had some comments on my Twitter stream today about that very thing, about someone that said they didn't like the ending because this whole show was just fanboy fluff. So I don't want to get too deep into this, but I just want to throw out, I don't understand when catering to your fans or giving your fans what they want or creating content that your fans will enjoy became a bad thing. Yeah. But we live in those times where everything is warped and upside down. And I just want the record to show that I don't believe any of that foolishness. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. I've never seen a business model that makes a point to try and serve up their customers things they don't want. It makes a point to try to produce what I call spike content. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't understand it. Me and Steve were talking about it sometime in the last week or two because I came up with spike right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I want to add just one thing. I don't think that fan service in and of itself is a bad thing. And in fact, it can be a good thing like it was with this episode. Uh, The problem is when they use the fan service to paper up the holes in the plot and trying to distract you from everything wrong with it. Um, I don't like that. Um, I'm not a fan of of using it in in that way and trying to be manipulative or worse, a bad movie that uses uh, good fan service. And it only reminds you of something you could be watching instead of this bad thing you're watching. Uh, so those are like my exceptions. But in general, I, I, am, I am against Spite Right and things like that. Um, just, I think fan service has its place. And, and, and if it's used well, use it. Absolutely. Just my quick two cents. Um, I, I see fan service in two different lights. The way we're talking about it here, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. It's like going to McDonald's and ordering a Big Mac and they don't give you the special sauce because they say it's fan service. You know, so it's like, oh, well, okay. Um, But for me, I I first came across this term fan service as it relates to Japanese anime. And to me, that's a completely different thing. It's like, if fan service service there is panty flashes and a bunch of other stuff, I was like, okay, yeah, I get that that fan service is like, yeah, if you're into fan service in anime, you are a breed apart. But... (laughs) You know, that is not what we're talking about here. And I, I definitely fall more towards uh, DT's position where it's like giving people what they love about the series is not a bad thing. Yeah. yeah if you're just going to keep going back to the well and not give us anything new and just give us keep giving us the same movie over and over again, I can see how that would be bad. But, you yeah, know, well, if, you, if you're going to go back and give us stuff we love and and grow the lore, then 
I'm all yeah. for fan service. Let's, so. let's just remember that the people who are hating on uh, fan service, and this is legitimate fan service. This is fan service that works within the context. Those people are the people who hate the fans. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the spy right group. Right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And again, uh, that's part of of what is you know kind of gotten into geek culture in the last several years. And so now you have these different camps and these different voices and a whole bunch of things that just it, it, they don't have any resonance with me. They just they do not resonate with me at all because I literally cannot comprehend the logic because there's no other industry or business model that would entertain the voices of people that hate your product. <laughs> might want consumer groups, you might want, you know, constructive criticism, you might want feedback, you might want a lot of different things so you can improve what you do. But people that flat out hate everything you do and everything you've done and everything you stand for, and yet now they're being catered to. I cannot wrap any part of my brain around that. It just does not resonate with me. Resonate with me because I'm like, uh, you wouldn't let someone come in your house and bring their dog and crap all over your living room and say you're just an animal rights hater. That's well, thing, so dumb. I need a new word for dumb. So, so the thing that gets me with that. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I mean that's that's why I, I just don't get it. I just don't get why people even entertain such a thing. So you let them in and they destroy everything good about what you created. And so that's why we have such a stark contrast between, for example, the sequel trilogy and this show. And well, I'm like, well, here's why you here's why you can't win. It's like if you say you don't like it, they say, "Don't go away. We didn't make it for you." And then when it fails, they blame us for not watching it. Yeah. See, and that's another thing I don't get in is uh, you know, no win situations. Uh, that's another thing I just don't fool with that. There's, you know. I don't even understand it. You know, people set up situations and that's because they want to hate. They're not actually trying to have a discussion. You just want to be mad. But then be mad. Be mad over there. But anyway, anyway, anyway. So um, the point I wanted to make next, and I'm going to throw that out to my co-host, is this. <clears throat> not that I didn't enjoy, per se, seeing their little version of the watery Kraken or the the Sarlacc pit in the ship or whatever in the heck, you know, released the Kraken was. I knew from the moment they invited Mando on the ship, it was a trap. So just <laughs> like, you know, I might be a bit picky, but I want to hear what you guys think. Because just like I knew in uh, Force Awakens when, uh, when uh, Han was going to die, I was like, don't walk out on that 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 walkway and face your said just no and Chewie's standing right there Chewie would never let that happen I'm like what are you doing so but as soon as I saw this I was like it's a trap it's a trap why are you getting on the ship with you it's a trap these people can try to capture you take it they're gonna try to do something it's a trap why can't you see this is a trap so of course my face Hello? rings while I'm recording the podcast <laughs> so um, <laughs> So, uh, you know, so I was like, I understand that we needed it, or, or at least that's the way they wrote it for the setup for the other Mandalorians to come in. But at this stage of the game, this guy's a bounty hunter. That's what we were. That's what he was uh, when we met him. He spent more time 
being a bounty hunter than he has being a hero and a dad. He's only been a dad for a season and three episodes now. But all before that, he was a bounty hunter. You have to have more street smarts. You have to have better instincts than that. And I just found it really hard to buy because I'm saying, as soon as I saw him on the screen, I'm like, it's a trap. It's a trap. And I'm like, how was y'all going to get the armor from the Kraken? Like, was he going to eat the meat in the bones and spit the armor out? That would have been interesting. But anyway, I want to hear what you think about Mando's instinct in that particular moment. Because I it was just something I just, I couldn't allow that one. Uh, start with Bracey. You know, it's interesting. I have to wonder at this point if maybe Mando, uh, because it did seem really uncharacteristic. Every, every one of us knew, it was like, as soon as you saw, like, oh, yeah, this is clearly not going to go the way you want it to. But, you know, he's so geared up with weapons and armor. Is Has he just become complacent? I mean, he he essentially thwarted a trap right here in the uh, first episode of uh, this season. Uh, he's he's walked right into the middle of, of several tense situations and just kind of waded through them all. And, uh, man, he just charged a buttload of stormtroopers and just uh, prayed that he would take all the shots in the armor for throwing out some explosives. So I don't know. Maybe... Uh, Maybe he's just got too much faith in his abilities or his gear. I don't know. It just it, it did seem odd to me. It was a uh, pretty legit that it was going to be a trap. And uh, as for the armor bit, uh, you know, Beskar is pretty damn near indestructible. I think they'd have just waited for the monster to poop it out, or if it was in their hold anyway, it was probably something they're going to carve up and sell at the market regardless. So there's that. Oh my goodness! Now I got pictures of him sifting through the poop. <laughs> <laughs> or carving the monster, carving up his stomach. Okay, go ahead, Steve. What do you think about that? Yeah, I have to say, like, when I was watching it, I think I had a very uh, standard Star Wars response to this, and that was, I have a bad feeling about this. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure I was probably not alone in that. Um, so, yeah, looking at this, and first of all, it's like, okay, yeah, the whole thing did look very sketchy. And second of all, the people that are inviting him on the ship are Quarrens. Uh, if you know Quarrens at all, you know that they're very often are villains or affiliated with villains. Um, you know, some of them were, I believe, uh, pirates, you know, working um, for uh, one of the pirate villains in uh, Clone Wars. Uh, I, I really remember them from Knights of the Old Republic, where, you know, a couple of them were crime lords. So it's like, you know, generally when a Quarren usually offers you something, uh, be very suspicious. Um, that having been said, I'm kind of wondering whether Mando kind of felt, okay, this is the only lead I have taking me to the other Mandalorians. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm and go along with it and, you know, maybe kind of keep an eye out for a trap. But, um, you know, if it ends up being legit, then good. Otherwise, you know, I'll just kind of find a way out of it. I, I don't know that he had a whole lot of choice other than to follow the one lead that he had. I mean, he could have done other things. Um, I think he could have handled the, the business on the boat uh, better. He should have been better prepared. But, I mean, the decision to go on the ship or at least follow the lead, I could see some value in it. He just should have been more skeptical and more prepared uh, is kind of where I'm going with that. Um, but aside from that, um, I really didn't. I don't know. I, I kind of felt like the Kraken idea was fine. But again, my biggest problem was really you didn't have an air supply in your suit. You have, a, you have an air. Your, your suit is designed to fly on a jetpack and we've seen him fly pretty high. He would have to have some level of air supply. 
Uh, maybe he depleted it flying over. Uh, I don't know. But um, it, that that was the one part which I thought really was sketchy. But I don't know. The, the one thing that kind of got me and w- what was the weaker thing about this is that a, to a certain extent, all of this seems set up so that they could present Bo-Katan and her followers as the big damn heroes uh, to establish them. Um, and, you know, they could have, I think, have set up uh, Din a little bit better in terms of setting up the trap so that when they do have to save him, you know, it's not so obviously stacked against Din in favor of these people. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it wasn't enough that it broke the episode for me. It was just one of those things where it's like, okay, I see where this is going. I see where the gears are turning. Um, and it, But it wasn't like a fatal flaw. It was just one of those things where I, I rolled a little bit, but generally enjoyed it aside from that. Okay. Okay. Go ahead, Nemesis. All right. Um, well, first off, I gotta get this off my chest. I, I I admit that I am running on caffeine and adrenaline right now, so <laughs> things that should be funny to me are funny. So when Steve <laughs> just said air supply, I immediately <laughs> had a vision of Mando needing uh, tapes and CDs of '70s and '80s love music. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. And he's so, all out of love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to his sweet dreams. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I never even really got past, uh, you know, considering that this was a trap, past the fact that it was Quarren's and the fact that uh, the first time I was really seriously introduced to this race was that episode of Clone Wars where that one Jedi just decimated, like, hundreds of them underwater. You know, mm-hmm. I don't even remember what episode that was. Ever yeah, since then, uh, Kit Fisto. Yeah, Kit Fisto. I mean, he he just destroyed them, man. He he took them to town. But ever since then, every time I see that race, I just assume that yeah, bad stuff is happening. And so I never <laughs> leap took a further you know uh, leap forward than that. You know, there was no logic beyond that. Um, you know, thinking about from a writer's co perspective, I mean, it was quite obvious that. Uh, it's unfortunate, and this is a ding against this episode and the writers. Mando does have uh, plot-specific, or his street knowledge and his wits are only as good as the plot needs them to be, or they're as bad as the plot needs them to be, and this is a perfect example. So you he's know, got plot chinks in the armor. Exactly. So... <laughs> You know, Mando would normally have his guard up and be, like, watching everybody really closely. And, you know, yeah, these guys, he's with them on this trip and everything, but he's also going to be aware of any, like, shady stuff going on. But because we need to introduce Bo-Katan and establish her bona fides and everything, Mando's out to lunch just to join the, the beautiful ocean view while he's on this cruise. You know, he and Gilligan are hanging out, you know, listening to air supply as they're cruising along, so... You know, that's what's going on here. Um, the crack, you know, the the, the the sea kraken or the sea sarlacc, it is what it is. You know, it's it's a monster. Uh, I thought it was a little silly, uh, to be honest with you, especially the fact that uh, these idiots push Baby Yoda down there. It's like, you know, yeah, the Beskar's worth a lot of money, but, you know, everybody and their brother's looking for this Baby Yoda. You know, what would the Empire give you? So, I mean... They just shot themselves in the foot there. So the whole scene was a little silly right from the beginning for me. And uh, 
I'm still cracking up over here about air supply, so we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, you know, in general, the way Mando moves around with Baby Yoda out in the open is ridiculous. That's another thing that I always have a problem with because hmm. they're two of the most hunted people in the quadrant, and he never, sometimes he has Baby Yoda behind him. I'm like, dude, somebody could snatch the child, and, you know, so I. They still haven't fixed that. So, you know, I, I think Nemesis hit it, though. I think that Mando has plot-dependent instincts. And it's one of the few weaknesses of the show because there are some things where he should know different, he should know better, and he gets himself in situations that, oh, uh, uh, he should have been able to avoid. But anyway, okay, so moving on. We talked about a little bit about the religious difference and the political differences of Mandalorians that we meet here and uh, versus Mando's sect or Mando's more religious based cult uh, that you don't take your helmet off and this is the way and you got to earn every part of your armor and you only earn it in combat and which is also kind of funny uh, I'm not going to jump ahead but there's something that happens at the end of the season that has to do with honor and winning a piece of hardware but we'll talk about that when we get that so what do you think about Bo-Katan's plot to actually retake Mandalore what do you think about about her feeling that you know because the name of the show is the heiress we found out she's that's talking about her she thinks she has a right okay uh, a nepotism right uh, a blood right uh, a war one, right? Uh, I'm smarter than everybody, right? Uh, does she have all that or none of that? Um, so let me hear what you think about that. Start with Steve. Does she have a right to retake Mandalore and install herself as the queen? Well, she were, she was the previous Mandalore, so uh, by by in that sense, I mean I can understand wanting to take it back. I mean she in her mind she's taking back what's hers, you know, because it was something that she had and then lost, and she lost it on on top of that to the Empire, which I mean that you know you can completely understand why she would want to take her culture back in the name of Mandalore. Um, beyond that, I mean she's also the sister of the of Duchess Satine. Um, and she may have that that whole thing in mind. Uh, she talks about how her armor goes back three generations. So, you know, there's definitely she's definitely acts like somebody who's who's almost like royalty um, by the standards of Mandalore. On the other hand, you also have to keep in mind that in Mandalorian culture, things are not handed to you. They are won by right of combat. Um, and she and I, I think that she probably thinks that. You know, she has the, you know, the strength and the and the ability, you know, to take it back. But I find it also interesting because previously in the Siege of Mandalore story in Clone Wars, um, she actually expresses a certain amount of doubts whether or not she can hold uh, Mandalore together. Uh, she expresses this to uh, Ahsoka, I believe. Um, and, and I kind of find that she has apparently changed a lot between then uh, going through Rebels and um, you know, uh, taking the Darksaber for herself at one point and then, you know, taking Mandalore. So I think that um, whatever issues she may have had at that time, you know, she feels like she has earned them. And then what she's doing is trying to win back what is hers. Um, and I can kind of see from her perspective why she would think that. Now, later on, uh, once we start talking about the ending, and I won't uh, spoil that yet, um, 
I think it is going to be a very interesting question about what determines the right of succession and, you know, what 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 really earns you the place, you know, to rule Mandalore. So um, I could definitely see where her case um, is reasonable from her point of view, but it's not something that I would say that she has definitively earned. She has to fight her way back. And I think that what she's doing with this plan, um, trying to take over this Imperial ship, making all these, you know, hit and run tactics against the Empire is her uh, trying to prove to the Mandalorians and to herself um, that she is capable of ruling again, um, one victory at a time. So I think that there's probably an element of that. But, you know, is she the obvious choice? Is she the best choice? Well, she did lose the, the, the crown at one point. She could easily lose it again. Um, I think in her past uh, doubts and may have had, you know, some justification as well, because she's not a, a diplomat the way that Satine was. Satine was able, you know, to keep everything together, um, you know, by playing uh, diplomacy. And she knows she's a warrior, not a diplomat. So her style of, of winning has to be through combat because that's what she knows how to do. The thing is, is that victories by combat and ruling by combat only works as long as you win. Can she win indefinitely? Um, I, I have my doubts. Okay, well said. And for those of you that before we found out that Ray was a Palpatine, you know, people that thought she might be a Kenobi thought that the Duchess might be Obi-Wan's baby mama. Okay, just want to throw that out there. Okay, go ahead, Jeff. What do you think about Bo-Katan's plan to retake Mandalore? Uh, Bo-Katan's plan definitely uh, speaks a bit Game of Thrones to me uh, because, like, her sister was indeed a diplomat, and they were leading Mandalore away from that whole warrior culture, but uh, Bo-Katan's clearly steeped in that. Uh, the Mandalores of like the Death Watch and and uh, and her particular uh, sect, they remind me very much of the the Nietzscheans from uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, where you know might makes right and the you know the strongest rule. But uh, thinking back of Game of Thrones, when uh, when the two Baratheon brothers were uh, challenging each other for the uh, for the throne after uh, after the king got killed in his boar hunting accident. You know, the younger brother told the other one was like, you know, the only reason you you've got the you know, the only reason our brother even got the throne is because he just took it. So the whole idea of a uh, of a right of succession by lineage is invalid in the Mandalorian culture. But I think Steve's right that she feels this is, again, one of her legitimate reasons uh, for the right of Mandalore, the fact that she's held it. She's had a sister who was in power. She's had the dark saber at one point. But that uh, speaks to the question is like. Well, how did Moff Gideon defeat her? How did he take the saber from her? Because, you know, we'll find out later on in, down the series that she'll make a she's really hot to fight Moff Gideon one on one to earn the saber back. Uh, my other point is, I'm wondering, I understand it's their ancestral home, but the planet has been glassed. Is that a prize you want to win or would it be better to just go ahead and establish a new Mandalore? Hmm. Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Well, you know, I think that she would be the one to do it. I think she might be open to that because, again, she's not nearly a traditionalist like mm -hmm. our Mando is. But by the same token, you know, practically speaking, 
what kind of resources would that take? So yeah, I don't know we, if that would be. Really, we don't really see much in Star Wars in the way of terraforming. And if the surface of the planet has just basically been atomized, if it's nothing but slag, there's nothing there to be had. You know, it's it's not capable of sustaining life anymore in a practical sense. I uh, just want to throw in a couple things. One, we have seen terraforming in Knights of the Old Republic, too. Um, the Athorians uh, are, are terraformers, and, and they did uh, restore a couple of planets. It, it was very costly. It took a long time, but they do have it. The other uh, thing is is that um, the only value I think with with Mandalore at this point is symbolic value. So it could be that that her desire to take it is to is on a symbolic way to inspire the people of Mandalore because it was their traditional home and so, they're a very traditional warrior culture. So she may have seen that as being um, like a strategic victory in terms of morale. Uh, okay. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? That's the question. It's like sitting on that ridiculously dangerous throne in Game of Thrones all over. Yeah, yeah pretty right. much. Right, right, it's the right. symbol. <laughs> Go ahead, Nemesis. It's interesting because Jeff really hit on the theme of where my thinking is. But um, I think of a different IP when I look at Mandalore and Bo-Katan. I see a warrior culture. I see a prince or an heiress who wants to restore the glory of this warrior culture and reclaim a lost kingdom that has been destroyed. I see a lost kingdom that is now shrouded in myth and is considered cursed. And I look at all that and I can't help but just see a dark cloud of Bo over Bo-Katan as she's preparing to try and retake Star Wars version of Casa Doom. Ooh. Hmm. Okay. There is oh, an Aragornish uh, thing about her, yeah. Well, she would be in this case, she would be Balin, you know, who retook the minds of Mori of Moria, and all of the doors were wiped out when they went back to that cursed place, you know, and then Gimli comes later and finds that all the doors were destroyed and and slaughtered. And it just gets this feeling like they're going back to, I mean, and they even mention that a lot of the Mandalorians talking about Mandalore now, like it's a cursed planet. And it just has that feel for me, like you say you want to go back there, but do you really want to go back there? And if you do, what does the future hold for you? And like I said, I just see a dark cloud hovering over her and any in her company that try and go back to this place that just uh, is, is a stain in, on the soul of all Mandalorians, you know, and it, it really, it really struck me uh, watching this episode and other episodes where they talk about Mandalore after it was destroyed and how much it reminds me of the lost of the minds of Moria, the, the lost kingdom of Casa Doom. So, mm. Wow. All right. Uh, last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this one up. Uh, this I want to throw out. We've talked about it before, so I'm just throwing this out. But um, I'm still not happy, I guess you'll say, with the possibly gray morals of the child, of Baby Yoda, of Grogu. Uh, um, I'm glad he got a chance to hang around with the Frog family. But 
you know, he's staring at everything that's going on because he sees meals. He sees food. He sees burgers, man. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm just talking about the impact it has on the audience in terms of how we see child because he seems to have not a lot of boundaries. So just like any other kid, sometimes that's funny and sometimes it's annoying when you have as much force power as he does. Sometimes it's a little bit scary. So I'm still not convinced because uh, Nemesis has said it too on Twitter. I'm still not convinced that he's quote unquote a good guy or an all good guy, however you want to say it. I'm still not 100% convinced of that because he's done a force choke too. And force choke is a signature Vader move. I don't know why people keep sleeping on that. Luke did a force choke in Return of the Jedi when he went into Jabba's palace and everybody just kind of skipped over that. And Baby Yoda's done a force choke too. I'm like, okay, that's a dark side signature Darth Vader move. So y'all got some little dark, and you might not be a lot of dark, but you ain't all on the light side. I'm just throwing that out. Okay. So just uh, just two cents on that real quick, DT. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I thought the scene where Baby Yoda saw the you know was able to have some growth when he saw the babies being born, and then recognized that they were mm-hmm. alive was a redeeming quality of him. However, there's a scene all the way back in the first season where, to me, was even more of a problem and showed his lack of morals. And that's when he so casually uses force powers to steal those green Thin Mint cookies (laughs) from that student. And they just (laughs) sat there glaring at him like, yeah, I did it. What are you going to do about it? While he was tubing (laughs) on him. So to me... That was just like plain straight up thieving. You know, he was like, yeah, I took them. I took them with my force powers and good luck trying to get you back. I'll force choke you. So, you know, I was like. Right. Right. So we don't know if it's malice or immaturity. And I think they need to make that clear. Mm -hmm. If immaturity, then what you need is discipline and trading. That's one thing. If it's malice. That completely changes the Grogu character. Uh, I think it's it's survivability. And we'll get into that next episode because Ahsoka will say something about that. But I think think it's survivability. Hmm. Okay. All right. Definitely bring that up when we get to the next uh, episode because I do want to explore that some more. Okay. So what I want to talk about to wrap this up is... This was a short episode, too. This is just like a little bit over 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, but I thought that was appropriate for the story it was telling. What I want to talk about is the action set piece, the raid on the freighter. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, once again, this is something that we talk about, you know, lovers, haters, and whoever's in between about the power levels or the skill levels of the protagonist and the antagonist. I personally, you know that I'm my favorite character is Batman. I'm a big Batman fan. So I like anything Batman-esque. I like it when people know how to use their tech, when they know how to come up with creative ways that are not, you know, easily discernible to, to lay people. That shows you have some training or you have some type of 
strategic thinking in your arsenal. I love that. Love it, love it, love it. And uh, so it was a really, really good kind of action sequence. I personally don't think that the Mandalorians were overpowered. I've seen some comments that, you know, they might have been or whatever. But, you know, I love that they fight. I love that they have some form of martial arts that's uh, mixed in with their armor, like the flames, the, the wire thing, the grappling hooks, everything that they do, their martial arts, their wire foo is mixed into that, as opposed to Stargirl, who had instant flippity-foo just because she did. So tell me what you think about this action piece and what you think about the power levels of all those involved. Uh, start with Nemesis. The action piece itself, I enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, I don't have a problem with the power levels. Uh, you know, you could just as easily, you know, they were quite much more powerful than the stormtroopers and the people they are fighting. But you could say that's because the three of them plus Mando are all highly trained commando types within Mandalore. And, you know, Bo-Katan is actually a great warrior and all of that. The problem I have is that it, it seems pretty evident now that every Mandalorian I've ever seen is an incredible warrior. And at some point, I start asking myself, I'm, I start watching this and going, how the hell did these guys lose to the Empire? You know? <laughs> I mean, that, I, honestly, that's that's where I'm at. You know, and, and that's a side question. But really, you know, as I watch this stuff, I enjoyed it. I didn't have a problem with it. And, and that's as far as I, I would take my analysis of it. I thought it was perfectly fine and, and, uh, and very good. But from a larger lore perspective, I watch all this and go, how in the world did a planet full of Mandalorians lose the Empire? I mean, how many star systems worth of stormtroopers did they have to bring to just, you know, clog up Mandalore with bodies, you know, so that that's kind of where I'm at. Okay, okay. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I think my answer to that would be overwhelming numbers and utter sheer ruthlessness. Um, they're willing to do things that the Mandos will not do. Um, and plus, they're willing to kill anybody to get it, including their own people. We see that in this whole episode. The thing is, is that in this particular fight, uh, they're not overwhelmed and they're not uh, out uh, significantly outnumbered. Um, it, it's enough where they can go in there, take the ship by themselves with just four people uh, because they're just that good um, in this particular case. But if they were throwing like thousands of people on, on all of them, I think that they would go down eventually. Um, and we do see that um, like in the last episode. Uh, where they're really like throwing um, technological terrors in, in huge numbers and, and, and they struggle more with that. So, but it's just that in this case, uh, the uh, Bo-Katan apparently decided to choose a soft target, uh, one that was enough for four people to go in and take on and they could take them by themselves and, and, and make that work. Uh, that was fine. Uh, the action sequences from what I saw were really well done. Um, I agree with you guys on that. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to add on that. It's entertaining. You know, they keep things moving. And it's not one of those things where uh, anybody's overshadowing themselves and uh, Mando's not being overshadowed by the by the guest stars. Um, they put in about an equal amount of work. And, in, and indeed, uh, Mando manages uh, to get some pretty good moments, um, including taking some pretty heavy shots 
um, and risking himself a bit more, um, you know, so that he can show uh, Bo-Katan, yeah, you're worthy. I'm worthy of your trust. You know, give me the information. So that 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 stuff was fine. Um, I also like the Empire um, once they start getting uh, realize that they're overwhelmed. Um, and Moff Gideon just actually shows what a ruthless SOB he is um, by having the uh, captain kill the pilots and then uh, basically take a cyanide capsule, uh, you know, after try after trying and failing to destroy the ship to prevent the Mandalorians from getting it. So these are the kind of tactics that I think um, the Mandos uh, struggle a lot more with. Um, and, and it's really the only time when I think that they struggle in any meaningful way. And it's because Moth Gideon is a really ruthless, evil SOB. And um, that and, and his ruthlessness um, takes some adjustment to. And he's uh, a very good tactician. And we can definitely see that, you know, he's a step ahead of, of everybody for most of the season. Um, and that definitely comes across here, even though he kind of loses one. But I think this is this, too, is part of his plan. And we, we start seeing uh, that towards the end. Um, I think he's making this convincing. But, yeah, everything um, I didn't really have a problem with any of this uh, this bit at all. OK, go ahead, Bracey. Well, like Steve, I agree that uh, overwhelming numbers and tactics probably eventually take out the Mandalorians. Plus, it's like one planet versus an entire star empire. And in the. Um, the legends lore they came up with a weapon that actually rendered uh beskar useless now that's no longer canon uh but it made a what did it do like something it messed with something with the frequency of the beskar they either made it explode or made it become toxic and that's how they were able to uh collect all the beskar from uh, all the dead mandalorians uh, as far as the uh, legends goes anyway i think the fight was appropriate i don't feel like the uh I don't feel like the Mandalorians were overrepresented. They are elite commandos. I mean, they're trained from just about birth. It's like a, it's like the the regular Greeks uh, fighting the Spartans. It's it's just not going to go well for you, <laughs> especially if you've got your nice little your narrow hallway, your Thermopylae there, your hot gates, and you can uh, you can just hold off an army when you've got the best armor and equipment and training. So the people who are naysayers of, uh, of that sort of thing, it's like, yeah, you know, we've already got this joke in, in the canon that stormtroopers aren't that great anyway. So there's that whole thing. Um, another point, like, uh, as we like to make points of things like don't always make sense. Uh, I like the ruthlessness of Moff Gideon uh, ordering his lieutenant to crash the ship, knowing the ship was lost. And the fact that the guy was enough of a, enough of a sycophant to just go ahead and do it. Uh, what he shouldn't have done was like, yeah, shooting the pilots was fine. Locking the door was fine. Dive bombing it yourself was not fine. Uh, you should have set the course straight down and then you should have blasted the crap out of the control panel. Now nobody's pulling the ship up. It's a done deal. <laughs> so yeah, just, just a little, the little plot thing that kind of bugged me. I did like the fact that Mando got to actually do, uh, some fighting that proved that he was very obviously the equal of anybody in Bo-Katan's little pack there. Because uh, I didn't mind so much, like, for instance, on the boat when they used the obvious weakness of the child to uh, to neutralize Din Djarin and put him in a very precarious situation. But I didn't like the follow-up where, like, he's just accosted on the street by a whole bunch of corn. is like, oh, he can take these guys out with no problem all by himself. 
and then the other Mando's laying down and just blast everybody, not even giving him a chance. So it was, it was nice to see him like uh, prove his worth here, even though uh, as far as the character goes, uh, he really shouldn't have had to need to. But that's a good point. We do see him, you know, hold his own and give as good as he gets and all that. And that was the main thing I was concerned about. I didn't want him to be overshadowed because there was maybe a hint of that at first, but this kind of helped him come through and show that he's just as good as anybody out there, which is cool. All right, Bo-Katan gives up the goods, uh, says he's got to go to City of Caledon on the first planet of Corvus. He'll find a Jedi named Ahsoka Tano. Uh, and uh, so lots to say about her later. Okay, that's pretty much it for this one, a quick one. And it wraps up everything we've seen in the first two episodes. So we'll call this a little mi- mi- uh, mini trilogy thing. So we're moving on to the next thing in the next episode. So we're going to take a break right here. uh, And we're going to let you hear from some of our other sponsors. And hear some of the other things we have to offer on the United Capes Podcast Network. We will be back in five. From the aisles to the review station, Undercover Capes brings you all things action figure related. Join host Bob O'Mac as he shares his insights and thoughts on the plastic revolution. All right, folks, we're back. We're going to talk about The Mandalorian Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 4, entitled The Siege. And here we meet some old friends just to give you a quick recap. Um... Mando has to go back to uh, a friendly port, uh, Navarro, and he meets up again with Grief Karga, played by the incomparable Carl Weathers, and mm-hmm. Kara Jin, played by Gina Carano, who's become a bit of a, a hot-button figure herself. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it's also funny because Kara Dune sounds so much, so much like Gina Carano to me, sometimes mm-hmm. I forget that. Cardoon is not her real name. <laughs> I don't want to call her. Like, you know, Cardoon. No, Gina, right. Anyway, so they uh, are back on the planet, uh, and she's become like, she is what they were trying to make Seven of Nine be in Star Trek Picard. Seven of Nine was, you know, like a, a, a space ranger. But uh, Cardoon here is the real sheriff, uh, you know, the, the real law the real enforcer in town. And uh, so it's still an evil hive of scum and villainy. There's just less so uh, because they've been working on cleaning the town up, cleaning the planet up, which is cool. So finally, Mando has sense enough to uh, leave the child behind. But once again, they leave him with children and he does the, the, the blue cookie steal. Oh, that's right. It's this episode. Okay, I'm sorry. That's right. No problem. And um, so we also meet Mithral again, who was the accountant guy that Mando froze in Carbonite, the first episode of last season. And so uh, these heroes, quote unquote, our heroes, our favorite heroes, 
They uh, penetrate the base that they're, they're trying to invade only to find out what we've suspected all along, and this is definitely something we're going to talk about, and that is that they're trying to somehow, it's basically a super soldier plot except with midichlorians and the blood of the child. George Lucas forever changed Star Wars. He changed the force from magic to science. It's never been the same, and it's never going to be the same. So we're definitely going to hit that point. But this is why the child has been so desired, shall we say, going all the way back to the first season. Because remember, bad guys always have the same plot. They want super soldiers. They want Steve Rogers. They want Captain America. So they can create an unstoppable army and take over whoever they want to take over. That was the Emperor's plot, if you remember, except he did it with clones, and they're certainly not super soldiers. But it's the same idea. So we find out that's actually been been the point, and we kind of knew that. Science fiction fans, of course we kind of knew that, because what else would it be if it's not uh, super soldiers? But uh, anyway, so uh, they fight their way through, and they get back. And uh, we found out Moff Gideon is still alive, but we did. We knew that, but Mando finds out. And uh, they're on their way to find some more Jedi. And um, we also see one of the X-Wing pilots. And uh, they basically offer Cara Dune a uh, higher status. And uh, we're sure she gonna, she's going to take it, too, because that's what she's about. Okay. Uh, and so just that's a bit of an overview in terms of my thoughts for this episode. I thought it was really cool to see everybody again. I always thought from the time we meet Grief and Kara that they would kind of travel with Mando. I was surprised last season when Mando left without them. I thought they were going to be like a group because some of the best episodes of The Mandalorian has to do when he has a team. Like when he had Bill Burr's team, that was probably the greatest episode of last season. And oh, when he's with Kara, they work really well. So I was always surprised that, that Mando struck out just with a child. I mean, I understand it in terms of the story world, plot development, all that. But I always thought they were going to write this show to it would be like the three of them plus the child. Because that gives you more episode ideas built in right away. But anyway... So I thought it was a really good episode. I really liked the fighting. I really liked the discovery. And again, we're definitely going to talk about uh, the science versus magic uh, portions. And uh, I always like when there's uh, characters, recurring characters. I love that. Once again, you said Filoni was the continuity king. I love it when, because it, it reminds you, you're still in the same uh, story world. So it was good to see him. Uh, I always thought the Carbonite Maneuver, which is a play on the Corbinite Maneuver, but the Carbonite Maneuver in the first season, I thought it happened a little too fast because it took him a long time to freeze Han back in the carbon freezing chamber, chamber. That didn't happen instantly. But in this show, you just get gas with the Carbonite and you are out. So um, we can talk about that too. Um, so, and once again, the production values. The production values are fantastic. Nothing really happens too much that, that pulls you out of the episode. And once again, you feel like you're well-rooted in the world of Star Wars. So, uh, again, I liked it. And, and it's good to see them 
And like I said, I really think that Cara Dune is what they were going for with Seven of, of Nine and Star, Star Trek Picard. She's much more believable as law enforcement. Um, and I just think that everything about the way they write her is better than they've written uh, Seven, but that's just an aside. So let me hear some of your initial thoughts about the overall episode. Start with Bracing. Uh, this was definitely a, a very cool episode. Uh, I liked seeing Carl Weathers and uh, and Gina Carano again. And uh, Tara Dune actually does sound like the name of a badass MMA fighter. I think you're right on the money with that. So it was a uh, it was nice to see them get back to that. And uh, <clears throat> I know there's some people are complaining that they they keep hopping around from planet to planet to planet, but that's really following like a George Lucas sort of uh, aesthetic. Uh, each film, he wanted to showcase a different world, a different thing going on in a different world, just to show how interesting and fantastic it is. And they they are doing a lot of that here, so we're getting to see these new worlds. But at the same time, again, because I'm sure mostly because of the influence of Filoni, they keep touching back on uh, on previous things that we've gone, you know, that we've seen. You know, like we keep bouncing around to Tatooine and this world. And I'm sure we'll bounce around to a couple of the other worlds, but we still get to see new things at the same time. So it stays fresh. There's uh, just so much to like in this episode uh, because the three of them really did have good chemistry together. And I can see why you would think that uh, they would have gone off on their own little adventures. I I spotted it was going to take the Lone Wolf and Cub route uh, right off the first episode of the first season. But you are correct that Mando works best uh, in a group. And I think uh, when we get to the end of this season, I think we're getting set up for more of that. So uh, he's, a, he's, he's a good solo act, but he's a great group act. And so it was really nice to get this, uh, this gang back together and uh, just have a really fun, uh, somewhere between kind of a, a a World War II movie and a little bit of a heist adventure. And I, I really dig those kinds of things. And again, that goes back uh, once again to like the, the influence of all the things that influenced George Lucas as a filmmaker when he was growing up. So I just love everything they keep doing with this show, how they keep bringing all this Lucasism, if you will, uh, back into it. That's a word now. <laughs> cool. That is definitely a word, and uh, all of the B-movie films that fed into Star Wars mythology, you can see them all throughout the original trilogy. If you know anything about that era of films, especially the little floating uh, mind probe that they used, I'm like, holy cow, that's straight out of like my dad's era. But anyway, okay, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I think building off on that, uh, one thing that I'll kind of point out is, Really, Mandalorian is kind of like uh, the George Lucas version of all the old serials that he used to uh, be inspired by. Um, so everything is in that for an episode. You know, everything is uh, basically start and finish, you know, all done in one, um, you know, different situation every episode, all things like that. So all these things, I think, really come from uh, the serials or at least, you know, the, the things that kind of inspired Lucas. So you're going to find out with this entire show that everything is these outside film influences or TV influences or, you know, all that. But all of it is mixed in with the structure of the Western uh, TV show, you know, uh, you know, something like a Bonanza or, you know, the Virginian or something like that. 
where you have this guy, this this lone wanderer, you know, going from town to town, you know, on the horse and, you know, just dealing with these uh, different situations and then coming together. So they're so I think I, I, I that's kind of what they're aiming for. And in, and yeah, I would say it also is inspired by uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, my joke for always has been that it's basically Lone Mando and Cub. Uh, I have always called it that. Um, so um, there's all of this that are kind of mixed together to make something distinct. And I think that that's essentially what they've been doing with this. And that comes together, particularly with this episode. Yeah, I agree. He's always best playing off other people, because the thing is that Mando is not the kind of character who is going to say a whole lot or advertise a whole lot unless he's uh, basically forced to do it. He's a stoic. Um, so you need these people who are more talkative than he is, you know, to bring him out and to interact with him. Um, so that's why he ultimately works better with a group. I mean, he can work on his own. You know, you can have him be basically the lone gunslinger, you know, and be awesome and, and, and call it a day. But I like when he's teaming up with these various people. And um, I think part of the, the whole structure of this is we need to see him meet these ver different people so that when we get to the end of the season, we can bring them together and then have this, you know, awesome, uh, you know, Night of Cold K Corral uh, type of situation, which I think is what they did with uh, season two in particular. Um, and also with season one, because, you know, we meet Grief Karga early on. We meet Caro uh, Dune later on. And then eventually we get that big shootout. Um, on Navarro, uh, you know, with IG, um, I forget which one it was, but the one that played by Taika Watiti. Uh, and I really love that core group. And it's nice to see them coming back for this episode. And they haven't lost any of their cylinders. Um, I also kind of like the fact that they brought uh, John Favreau's character, uh, the blue accountant, back. Because even though that was a silly character, I like that John Favreau. Um, is not like so egotistical like a lot of Hollywood people are, where he's willing to play a character where he completely is kind of like a self-mockery. And, <laughs> and having that play with these three badasses and have him play this guy who is a bit of a goof, uh, who's a bit of a loser, who's a bit of a coward. And these guys, you know, and you get that really great uh, vibe between the four of them. And I thought that that was the core of what really worked. I'm glad that Baby Yoda was uh, for the most part kind of out of sight and out of mind. Um, I like, you know, I, I ultimately like that this whole thing was a big action episode. And yeah, it's a little bit like a Guns of Navarone type of thing. We've seen that with Rogue One. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, in, in, in that kind of adventure where they're going in and they're infiltrating the enemy base and they're having this big, you know, shootout in the base. And, you know, all of these, you know, big exciting things that that is built on what Star Wars does. So, you know, the, the Western elements and the, and the you know, uh, the war um, film elements and, and all of these other things. Um, and you feel like you're getting something unique and special uh, because of the way everything ties together. And you have these four characters that are fun to watch together. And so you get a really fun episode out of all of that. Yeah, I, I dug this one. Cool, cool. A uh, very good explanation as to why Mando works better because he is stoic, he is quiet. He is, he is by nature, he would have to keep to himself based on what he does. So when he has other characters to play off of, it definitely makes for a more exciting episode. Go ahead, Nemesis. Yeah, I think you guys hit on most of, uh, you know, the general one over the world type things that I talk about. So I'm just going to throw out a couple things that stuck out with me that aren't necessarily um, topics all on their own. Um, the first one is just, I, I'm going to say this right up front. I love Carl Weathers in this role. 
But the problem yeah. for me is that Carl Weathers is so, uh, especially for a certain time frame, was in so many movies, and he's so memorable for me that it's very easy to start mixing up those roles into this one. So what do I mean by that? When I look at him, this character of uh, what is it? What's his name again? Griff. Grief Carga. Grief Carga seems to be to be a perfect mashup of Apollo Creed, Action Jackson, and Dylan from Predator. You know, I'm expecting uh, Dutch to come in, you know, in the form of Mando, and they're going to do like the Dutch Dylan handshake at some point, like the flex off type thing. You know, that's kind of the feeling I get sometimes. At the same time, uh, how do I say this? I, I don't want to disparage his role at all, but it's like I get the feeling that he's trying to be the Carl Weather version of Lando Calrissian, and instead I'm getting Apollo Creed instead. And I don't, I can't make up my mind if it's just because I've loved him in all those other movies or if I'm wanting something more. So that's that's one thing that I notice. Uh, the Gino Carano stuff, uh, I like her in this role. I think she's a little bit limited and a little bit uh, stiff sometimes in her acting. Her action chops are, you know, they're second to none, though. So I, I enjoy that as well. Uh, we already talked about the Green Thin Mints. The only other thing that really sticks in my mind from this episode that really sticks out is something that I wanted to bring up was when they go over the briefing on they're going to go to this, uh, you know, Imperial base and they're going to take it down because, you know, they want to get, you know, whatever the, the plot was. They want to get rid of that last garrison there and secure the planet in Navarro. Um they make it, they, they actively say that this garrison is all the way on the other side of the planet. And yet we see Bando fly in his jetpack and get all the way back to the kid towards the end of the episode. No problem. We see them drive in this and a land speeder there. It's like, how the hell fast was this land speeder going that they got halfway around a planet, you know, as they're going out for this little jaunt. And then they get in that APC speeder and come back and are fighting a running battle across half the planet with TIE fighters and survive. So uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I had a little bit of problem with that. And it's like, once again, I could be just like really focusing on the wrong details, but if that really was across half the planet and they were fighting, especially that last part where they were being chased by those TIE fighters, while Bando is flying all the way back halfway around the planet on his jetpack, then you need to tell me how big this planet is and that it's feasible that all of this could be done and that Mando didn't run out of fuel or get overtaken by the TIE fighters and that the TIE fighters didn't have enough time to just blow that uh, speeder out of the red, out of, you know, out of the water or out of the, you know, out of existence. And uh, so that's just kind of my general thoughts on on this episode uh yeah we need to know if it's an earth-sized planet because it takes 16 hours to get to japan from here by airplane so yeah we definitely need that kind of thing so that might be one of the uh you know that's the old movie trick that they do they just ignore actual distance (laughs) and just say here now (laughs) so it might be you know that kind of thing and I'll admit, it's an incredibly nerdy thing that just stuck, stuck out at me. And sometimes those things, 
you know, I'll be honest. Sometimes they just stick in your mind for whatever reason, a little detail just nags at you. And that one, especially nagged at me the entire episode. I was just like, how the hell big is this planet? How are they getting from point A to point B, you know, in these speeders and everything else? I mean, what is going on here? So I guess it's slightly bigger than King Kai's. Well, I think it's small world, small is grief and Kara and clean up that much of it that fast mm-hmm. can't be all that big. You know, the fact that they would say they could make that kind of a difference planet wide, it can't be that big. So, so maybe that's why, I mean, that makes the most sense given, uh, given everything else we've seen in this episode. So, uh, planet size, maybe. Yeah. yeah maybe, maybe it's just, what did you guys think of Mando trying to t- turn Baby Yoda? Uh, excuse me, I can't talk. What did you guys think of Mando trying to turn Baby Yoda to Jordi LaForge in a Jeffries 2? <laughs> <laughs> that was I'm like, uh, <laughs> y'all can't communicate yet. What are you sending this this dude, you know, down with the wires and whatnot? But anyway, so what did you think about that, Steve? Yeah, I was just like, okay, it's obvious that this is meant to be like a comic relief situation because there's no way this kid adva- understands advanced engineering. Why would you expect this kid to understand wires? Yeah, of course he doesn't know which wire to put in there. Of course he doesn't understand proper safety techniques and he doesn't understand that, yeah, maybe if I put this wire together with this other live wire, maybe I might blow my face off. No, there's none of that. It's clearly just meant for 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 fun. I I no, I don't think it makes any sense. I don't know why uh, Din would put him in there. I mean, even if you're you're not, you can't be that desperate to get your hyperdrive to work. Uh, I I just like no, you wouldn't put your kid at risk doing that. I, I I just don't get it. But I mean, as a if it's if it's taken in the way that it's meant to, which is as a little funny comic relief scene, I'm just like okay, fine, we can kind of get through that. But no, it makes absolutely no sense at all. <laughs> What do you think, Bracey? Yeah, that's that's totally bad parenting. But uh, I have to agree with Steve. It's it's very obviously uh, unpractical, uh, unreasonable. It's not something you would do in real life. But it's it's once again, it's one of those moments put in just purely for comic relief, like watching the stormtroopers not being able to hit an object 15 feet away while they're deciding whether or not to go into town. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a cute scene, but you know. It, it didn't really add anything or take anything away. A uh, bit of a setup to get them to where they were going next. But, yeah, definitely funny from the jump. What do you think, Nemesis? Yeah, I felt the same way. And in fact, uh, I was waiting for him to put one of the wires in his mouth or something. That's where I thought it was going. So. <laughs> cool. Okay. So uh, they're going to clean out the Imperial base. And they leave uh, Grogu, Baby Yoda behind, which finally they should, although anybody that's following Mando would recognize that as an opportunity to snatch the child. So every Mm -hmm. time they separate, that's what I'm thinking. Because remember how we meet Boba Fett. Boba Fett is smart enough to figure out Han Solo's sticking to the Star Destroyer tactic and detaching with the debris and looking like space trash when they went to hyperspeed. Boba Fett figured that out and followed them to Cloud City. So that's always my image of bounty hunters and Mandalorians, that they would be smart enough to anticipate tactics like that. That being the case, 
anybody that has any type of eyes on Mando would know that he leaves this child out in the open and sometimes behind altogether. So, but I don't know. I may be being nitpicky again, but I'm like, this would be the perfect time to strike because he's on the other side of the planet and the child is unguarded. But anyway, that's just me. Okay. So they get to the Imperial base and they penetrate the base. They come up against a bunch of stormtroopers and then they discover the whole lab thing. They discover that that Dr. Pershing has been using the child's blood to try to create something based on the high metachlorian count. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is because there are so many different elements wrapped up in this little scene. First thing is, like I said in the intro, George Lucas changed Star Wars forever when the Force went from being magic and faith-based. Because when Yoda talks about the Force to Luke and Empire, it's very much based on faith, based on energy, and clearly based on character when you have light and dark side. But then he introduced midichlorians in the Phantom Menace. And all of a sudden, the Force became science and somewhat arbitrary, meaning you can now be a Force user regardless of your character because you have a high midichlorian count. That completely changes the entire mythology, and it's never been the same since he did that. But here it takes it a step further because they're trying to duplicate or they're trying to transfer midichlorians, or they're trying to grow something based on a high midichlorian count. And also you have to wonder, we've only seen three members of whatever this species is, Yoda, Yaddle, and Grogu. So are we saying that all of these creatures are naturally high in midichlorians, like their whole race is force-sensitive because they're born with high midichlorian counts? Because remember, when Qui-Gon tested Anakin, he said he's got a higher midichlorian count than anybody I've ever seen, including Master Yoda. See, so this little scene just, just throws so many monkeys in a wrench, you know, so many flies in an ointment. So, uh, so I'm just thinking about the impact on the overall mythology when we see stuff like this. Can it be duplicated by science? You know, can you take someone that has midichlorian blood? And then why don't we do a transfusion. Does that work? Let's say you're not force sensitive. Let's say you're not a Jedi and you get injured and you get a, a transfusion from someone that has a high midichlorian count. Someone like Anakin Skywalker when he was still human or Ahsoka or one of the Yodi sp species people. Do you then become force sensitive with those midichlorians in your bloodstream? I mean, it's just so many differences when you're talking about magic and faith and character versus hard science and duplicatable science. And here's the big thing. Here's the big thing. If such a thing was possible, why didn't the emperor specialize in it? Now, we, you know, he talked about the, the story of Darth Plagueis the Wise, and it's clear that Palpatine was his apprentice. And everybody believes that Palpatine created Anakin through manipulating the Force. But if this kind of thing is possible, would he want Force power in Stormtroopers? Or why didn't he make a hundred different Anakins? Or, you know, it's just so many different questions. 
So I want to hear you guys' thoughts about this. When we see this lab and we see what they're doing, and they're basically doing a super soldier type thing, Steve Rogers type of thing, you know, uh, how did you respond to that? Did you think about, you know, some of the things I'm talking about here? What's your general attitude towards the force as a faith-based, energy-based, magic-based character thing and just hard science? Uh, let me hear your thoughts. Start with Steve. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not really that crazy about when they start getting too much into the science of the Force and the midichlorians and all that sort of thing. I really do prefer the more mystical approach, which you, you can have a little bit of both. I mean, you can certainly have, um, you know, the whole thing of, well, the Force is strong in my family. And of course, it's strong in your family because you all have the midichlorian count. Um, you know, and things like that. So there was always a little bit of heritage involved, but it was not like taken to the point where they take it like in the sequels where, you know, they think that, oh, obviously Rye must be related to this person over here because, you know, this thing is all. No, I just don't like dealing with that. I really, really don't. That having been said, if it was um, that way and you know it's that way, you have to ask the question of, OK, why don't they do you know, develop it in the way that they're doing. I'm not 100% convinced that Palpatine was behind this. He didn't seem to be that interested in using genetics um, as a way of acquiring power. He seemed to, if anything, he was interested in limiting the number of ability, the people who had the ability, um, because that way he could maintain control over them. So it's like the, he was very big on the rule of two, for example. So I'm kind of wondering whether the whole uh, initiative is not really Palpatine, but his uh, the Imperial remnants and people like Gideon saying, OK, we know this and we know this. Why don't we go and find a way, you know, to create, a, you know, Jedi stormtroopers or rather Sith stormtroopers or, or, or whatever? I think some of it all is also about uh, Gideon um, not only injecting himself with this, whatever this is, um, but also... Um, getting the other abilities as well, which is, you know, he doesn't, you know, the the, the lifespan of uh, Grogu. Uh, so, you know, also having that. So you so basically you have an idea of a character that can basically give himself virtual immortality uh, through this, in addition to the high midichlorian count. Um, so I, I can see the logic behind it, even if I'm not particularly a big fan of that approach to Star Wars. Um, I think that for this particular episode, it does work. I think it makes sense for Gideon to do this. Um, Gideon is extremely ruthless. Um, he has absolutely no uh, compunctions about anything. You know, he's somebody who is willing to take any effort to acquire power and to um, rebuild the empire. So um, I wouldn't I'm not surprised that he would do this. But I don't think this was Palpatine's plan. I, don't, I really don't. I really think this is Gideon on his own or whoever's behind him, because I'm not 100 percent convinced that Gideon is the ultimate imperial threat. Um, we do see mention of somebody uh, who is a major, you know, possibly still being behind the scenes. And it might be that there are other, you know, imperial warlords that we don't know about or other imperial warlords that are above him that we haven't seen. Um, so it's but I don't think that this came from Palpatine. I think this is really probably more um, his former followers, you know, trying to rebuild the empire and taking their own initiative about it, uh, because Palpatine's been dead for like five years. And by this point, I think whatever Palpatine wanted is not really that important unless you accept the sequels or, or you accept uh, that the real Palpatine has been alive all along. And I really don't. So. Um, but it is interesting. It's just not the kind of thing I, I, I like to think too heavily about. 
Okay. Okay. Go ahead, uh, Nemesis. Yeah, I'm I'm of two minds of this subject. I, I don't mind it per se, but because they introduced it in the prequels, I, I think it created really serious continuity problems because it's uh you know, there's not that much time that has lapsed. I mean, relatively speaking, between the end of uh the prequel trilogy and the beginning of a new hope and for the average person to view the force as a mystical power and just chalk it up to sorcery and everything i i don't have a problem at all and and i'm also perfectly willing to say um magic is just science we haven't discovered yet but then when you have somebody like obi-wan or yoda you know Obi-Wan who encounters Luke and and is and doing things with him why wouldn't Obi-Wan who is very knowledgeable in midichlorians and everything i mean he was a jedi master for goodness sake give Luke the the simple blood test to determine what his his capabilities are what his his uh, potential is uh to be a jedi you know why has uh have the two remaining uh jedi knights Jedi Masters abandoned the whole concept of midichlorians by the time we get to uh, episodes four, five, and six. So there's that. Um, the other thing that is really strange about all this, and uh, if I ever had the opportunity to um, interview George Lucas, I would love to pick his brain on this one, is that this whole concept of midichlorians strays dangerously close to concepts in Scientology. And I'm wondering what, if any, uh, message George Lucas was sending about Scientology and the stuff that they preach as far as like microscopic, uh, symbiotic, intelligent life forms. And, and if they were actually going to build on this in the canon, there's so much more that they need to establish because these life forms are supposed to be intelligent and symbiotic and that all life forms, intelligent life forms, have these midichlorians in them to one degree or the other, even if you don't have force powers. So what does that mean? Does that mean that life forms that don't have midichlorians aren't intelligent? Is our intelligence, is our awareness only because of the midichlorians? There are all sorts of places to go with this, and I don't know that George Lucas even thought about that. I wonder what exactly he was thinking when he introduced this and if it was ever part of Star Wars before he began writing the prequels. Because, like I said, I don't have a problem with the concept, but it is such a huge concept, especially for those in the know. You know, the, for the general public not to know about it, I don't have a problem. But for those of the know, to know about it and then just to let it slide and it just disappears from view over the years, it doesn't seem very realistic to me. So that's where my problem is with it, really. See, that's what I mean about how everything changes once you go from magic to science. Now, between... Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope is 20 years. Mando, right. uh, Mando is set five years after Jedi. Right. So they're still toying with the idea of the Jedi being myths on some level in some planets. 
So that kind of flies in the face of the Empire having taken over most of the planet. You don't know who Vader is. You don't know who said it. It's kind of inconsistent. But that's kind of, you know, story world dependent. But uh, I would go ahead, Bracey, and make your thoughts if, on all of this stuff. Yeah. If I can. Um, I, I would say that part of it is because Palpatine was crushing all knowledge of the Jedi. Um, I think that there was a, um, shall we say, 1984 uh, style of uh, history erasure <laughs> uh, going on. And that may have contributed to why uh, nobody seems to know about the Jedi um, even after all this time. Okay. Okay. All right. That's possible. Go ahead, Bracey. Uh, Nemesis, I've actually got an answer to your question. Okay. So when uh, George Lucas was starting the prequels, he was disturbed in the interim in between the two films by a trend uh, that he noticed happening online. And, you know, obviously being connected with Star Wars, things like this would filter down to him. Uh, do you are you aware of the fact that there is an official Jedi religion that is practiced in the world today? Uh, no, I am not. <laughs> there is. There are legitimate Jedi temples, people who practice and follow the way of the Jedi as best they can, given the fiction uh, that we have available. And this disturbed George greatly. So when it came time to uh, produce the sequels or the prequels, I should say, he decided to take the religion out of it because he was worried. Uh, it, it, it troubled him that people were taking something that he created and turning into a religion, possibly because, because as you noted, the uh, the microscopic organisms uh, and the, the ties with Scientology, because he could see this very thing being in Hollywood. He sees what's going on. You know, Scientology is really, really uh, prevalent in Hollywood. And uh, the interesting thing is by turning it away from its original religious concept, he warped it into the actual Hollywood <laughs> religious concept in a way. So yeah. there's a bit of irony there. Uh, like you said, DT, this does change everything, and it's really unfortunate. Like uh, like everybody else here, I prefer the religious aspect of it. Um, I like the idea that the Force is like, uh, you know, they, they often allude to them in the uh, in the films, and this TV series is as being like uh, sorcerers, you know, wi wizards, magicians. You know, that's that's part of the whole idea of Star Wars. It's halfway between like a, a fantasy, a war film, Buck Rogers and, you know, Excalibur. Uh, so you've got your your Merlin, you know, and your Obi-Wan when Luke meets him. You know, he's given his sword, Excalibur, all this sort of thing goes on. And the idea of destiny is there, but it's a destiny that has to be earned. So if you just are born with a buttload of midichlorians, which apparently Yoda's entire species, uh, whatever the environment of their planet is or their genetic makeup, they just happen to be rife with these things. Uh, so they, they just naturally get that boost. And I much prefer it if like you find out like Yoda species were like, say, a little bit more like Vulcans in the fact that they developed a sort of spirituality that allowed them to connect to the force in a greater extent than uh, than other races. I like that idea a lot better. It appeals to me a lot better. Now, some people might like the midi-chlorians better, but I, I think having that, and I know people are genetically different and these races are genetically different, but I think that takes away a certain agency from the characters. Um, you know, one of the things I love most about, uh, say, like uh, anime 
is you get these characters who have uh, no genetic potential, if you will. They got no midichlorians. Like you look at a, a Sasuke versus Naruto. Sasuke is a prodigy, uh, but Naruto works his butt off and eventually equals and perhaps even surpasses uh, his main rival if uh, if you go throughout the entire series. And it's it's weirdly almost a point Rian Johnson tried to make with his last Jedi, but he just really did it very, very poorly without any explanation as to why. So, you know, you just can't step all over canon. You got you to gotta do something with it. But that's what was going on there. Now, as for the uh, the base and the cloning, uh, the uh, the Force Awakens 1 and 2 were previously canon. I don't know if Disney considers them canon anymore. It was known that uh, trying to clone people with Force powers was extraordinarily difficult, although in the game scenarios they did eventually do it. But I have to agree with Steve that if this is done, it's done to a very limited degree. Like if they, because when I saw those tanks, I was immediately thinking of Snoke a bit. So if they if they do go the path of uh, Palpatine is still on Exegol or anything like that, he's not going to create anything that's more powerful than him. And uh, he does limit the amount of force powers, like all of his inquisitors, way below the level of himself, way below the level of Vader. Somebody you can uh, he can knock off with ease because even though he didn't train Darth Maul into the uh, full level of a Sith Lord, he was more of a Sith assassin. He still took the time when he became aware of him to go out and put an end to his little organization, as he said, like. You have become a rival, and he's not going to have that. Well, the Inquisitors are not really Sith. They're just, you know, almost Sith, kind of Sith, maybe Sith. But yeah, definitely not. Fallen Jedi, but still, he's, I'm sure, like, he wasn't letting anybody beyond a certain level of power live. See, where I think the Bidichlorian thing really starts to fall down is when you get out of the movies and into things like Clone Wars with uh, the Night Sisters as an example. Mm-hmm. The oh, Night yeah. Sisters seem so based in magic and mystical that the thought mm-hmm. that they are based in science and midichlorians seems ludicrous, to be perfectly honest. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's another thing that you alluded to, The Last Jedi, and uh, there was that scene with Yoda where he comes back and calls down lightning and destroys the temple and the ancient texts, the ancient books, and, and Luke is freaking out. And Yoda's kind of laughing, like, oh, well, we didn't need those anyway, and that wasn't a real deal. And, you know, that to me was a scene like Thor's hammer has been the focus of his power, then it's like it was never the hammer. I'm like, you can't have both of those. Y'all realize that, right? And then they make, <laughs> they give him Stormbreaker. I'm like, y'all, oh, anyway. So, yeah, to me, it just lacks definition and... I like it better as a faith-based thing. And I was aware, you know, that Jedi as a religion has been around for years. People mm-hmm. put that on their job applications, like religion Jedi. That's not, that stretches way back to like the original trilogy. So that's been around for a while. A lot uh, of people in Britain in one uh, census era um, actually listed all of them uh, as Jedi uh, just to <laughs> kind of mock the government. <laughs> I, I found this out a while back. <laughs> I did. So, I had no idea. That's that's crazy. Sorry for all you <laughs> Jedi out there. So, 
But uh, yeah, I think, you know, again, it needs some type of real definition and it needs some type of consistent application. Who am I to uh, talk? I threw away my uh, amulet of Kolinar, so. <laughs> <laughs> a Kolinar, so, yes. <laughs> yes. I have, <laughs> I have so been enjoying the Charles Sewell uh, Vader paperback uh, trades mm. and um, if you haven't read them, I highly recommend to anybody to read the uh, Charles Soule uh, Vader run because it's incredible. I mean, every episode, every issue, every every situation is just so incredible. It gives such depth. And then there's uh, this thing that they do when Vader is meditating. They show him kind of in a force space. You can see mm-hmm. that all uh, organic parts of his body are red and scraggly and alive with heat. And then his limbs that have been cut off are pure white because he's missing them. And that was the whole key to Anakin is that as powerful as Vader was, Anakin was off the charts. And if he hadn't lost his limbs and become bionic, he would have been something the universe had never seen. Just a so quick I'm, question for all of you, just to, you know, just out of curiosity. Do you miss the days when we didn't have as much information about Star Wars as we do now? I mean, when we were first introduced to Darth Vader in in A New Hope, and he was introduced with his full title as Darth Vader, Dark Lord of the Sith, it just sounded ominous and mystical. And none of us knew what the hell the Dark Lord of the Sith was, but we knew that it was pretty badass, you know. And then, and then it just got more complicated from there. Do you do you does that make any sense or or yeah. yeah. Uh, like I'm, yeah. I'm a little half and half. Uh, I love something should always be a mystery. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going to reveal a mystery, you should always have a new mystery that is persistent for a great amount of time, because there is a mystique in the mysterious character, in the Darth Vader, in the Boba Fett, in the in the Emperor Palpatine. And uh, but at the same time, I really liked ro- watching the rise of Palpatine. I liked watching the corruption of Anakin and Vader. I, I really dig that sort of thing. Um, a little bit less so with Boba Fett, but, you know, they, as long as they still make him a cool character. And now we've had uh, Din Djarin, who's created a mystique, and now that mystique's getting lessened and revealed as we go along the way. But I think if they can keep producing that mystique and maybe have some things that just are never fully explained because that's life, I'm satisfied with that. Yeah, I, I'm kind of along those lines as well. I don't know. I think the, the the thing of it is, is that, yeah, I can totally see, I totally miss kind of where it started because I, I really do remember uh, what that was like when we really didn't know hardly anything and it was interesting, it was cool, and we wanted to know the more about it and you want to use that. But at the same time, uh, the establishing of the Sith as a separate order with its own rules and its own code, you know, things like that are really interesting. Um, I think the question is, can you balance it? Um, I, I kind of would look to Doctor Who as an example, uh, at least until recently, of how uh, it was done, because, you know, you had this long going mystery of who this character was and you really didn't know anything about him. You know, you just knew a few things here and there and there were just things that they would never answer um, because that would kind of you know ruin things. And ultimately it did when you when the Timeless Children came out. But up until like earlier on, I mean, it definitely worked in that way. And I, I can see where Star Wars works in a similar sense. So, yeah, I'm, I, I kind of see where a little bit of both sides. But, yeah, I, I do kind of miss not knowing certain things. 
Definitely. Okay, well, my answer is a little complex. Uh, child me had to grow up and yield to capitalism. Writer <laughs> uh, me had to do the same thing. So the struggle is not to become cynical or jaded, but the truth of the matter is, if something is a hit, then the bean counters are going to rush in and just say exploit it. And the way they think is that if we have a brand, we can just slap the brand name on it and it'll sell. I mean, Bob Iger even said that flat out about Star Wars. And so people that, uh, how can I say this? Everybody's good at something, but nobody's good at everything. But people that control the purse strings think they're good at the creative part, too. They can't stand us. That's why they don't want to pay us. If they could cut us out of the mix, they would do it all themselves and keep all the accolades and the credit and the money for themselves. But they can't. So they kind of tolerate us. And that's why there's a writer's strike every couple of years, because they only deal with the creatives because they have to. They're looking for brands that they can exploit. The irony in all of that is that they will never understand why a brand is successful. So once they get a hold of it, they're going to be sure to ruin it by changing what worked, by cutting the budgets and putting so much of it out there until people get sick of it. So child me loved not knowing that much about Vader, loved the quick shot of seeing the back of his head in Empire. Because mm -hmm. everything we love about Vader happened in Empire except the force choke. That was a new hope. But everything that made Vader the, the ultimate screen villain happened in Empire. If it were up to me, I would have never shown his face in Jedi. I actually would have had a completely different ending to Jedi. And also, you got to remember that it wasn't Lucas that made Empire what it was. And Empire, last I heard, was his least favorite film, which is why we got you know Ewoks in Jedi, and which is why a whole bunch of different things happened. So that's what I mean when I say, as fans and writers, we can always see the potential of where something could have gone. And I definitely agree with the point about if you solve one mystery, you got to introduce a new one. If mm -hmm. you close one door, you got to open another one to keep your audience excited and to keep, you know, all that different kind of stuff. But they don't think that way. We think that way. And so we would have to get into a situation where we were where we wore all the hats, and that really doesn't happen except if you're like a, a, a Tom Cruise, maybe a Sigourney Weaver, where you can act right, direct, executive, produce, and where you get to decide what happens in the story. Um, but when you're going to put together something that has a kind of cohesiveness, you need a Dave Filoni. Uh, the, one of my favorite people that knows how to do it is uh, James Cameron. James mm. Cameron how to write, direct, produce, but he did all the jobs on a movie set before he became an official director. That's how he knows how it's supposed to go. He, that's why he knows how to put together a coherent film. And that's why some of his work uh, back in the day is just so beloved. So, yes, I do miss those days, but I kind of had to grow up, child me and writer me had to grow up and realize that once it becomes a brand, and once the bean counters get it, once the suits get a hold of it, they do not understand creativity. They do not understand fans. They don't, they don't understand any of that. They just see this thing started selling, so let's make more of it. See, now so, you bring up 
you bring up such an excellent point there with James Cameron, because James Cameron being that total creative, what does he do when he's given aliens to make? He doesn't exploit. He explores. And that's the difference between the creative and the producer. Yes, 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 yes. Because as a exec producer, it's your job to get the money together. As a producer, it's your job to get the team together. And then as a director, you're always going to be fighting the suits on your vision versus theirs. And we can see that in just about every movie that we see. That's kind of the tension between financing a project and creating a project, because you need both, but everybody's going to see a difference. So the best line for me was the line of Jurassic Park where the accountant or the lawyer goes, what's that you have? And the little boy says, uh, they're cool goggles, or they're headpiece, they're helmet goggles. The lawyer goes, are they heavy? He said, yeah. He said, that means they're expensive. Put them down. <laughs> <laughs> that. It's that. Uh, second favorite scene is when Ripley is trying to explain to the suits in Aliens what happened to the Nostromo. Mm. And they keep going over figures. $142 in adjusted dollars. Ripley's like, you don't get it, dude. (laughs) So that's what I mean. That is real life. That right there. So yes, I miss it, but I had to grow up. And the other thing I'll say is what I really miss is the days where every conversation wasn't a fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why I love hanging out with you guys. So, because this is what it used to be like. We could get together, geek out, nerd out, agree, disagree, be passionate, bring in our different perspectives, and it's all good. Mm-hmm. This used to be the flavor of our community, and I always loved it because our community is the only, not the only, but one of the few where there are no barriers to entry. Not age, not gender, not ethnicity. Uh, not sexual orientation, not socioeconomic class. If you are a geek, you can be a geek from any walk of life that you want to because we get together because we enjoy the story worlds. I do miss that because now having an opinion about anything is the start of a fight. Uh, right. <laughs> cue the salt. <laughs> All right. So, hey, we all okay. we all had that friend growing up who wanted to play Biggs when you were playing Star Wars and you just kind of looked at him. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey man, us longtime geeks, man, we were geeks when it was still an insult, <laughs> and we were geeks before it was cool, and we were geeks when nobody else was buying this content but us. So, you know, that's why I'm always harping on identity and just talking about the very people that built the empire. You're you're dissing the very people that, you know, me and Nemesis have talked about it a million times about watching the movies with our kids and passing on this torch, you know, all this different kind of stuff. And I'm like, how are you going to make those people mad? You don't have no sense. But anyway, that's a tangent. So, (laughs) so to wrap this up uh, again, uh, we knew Moff Gideon was still alive because we saw him cut his way out of his downed TIE fighter with the Darksaber, but now Mando knows it. And just like we knew from that little look that there was a tracking device on the Razor Crest uh, from the mechanic, we knew that as soon as we saw it. like, uh-oh, uh-oh, there's a tracker, dirty mechanic, we knew that. So all that's going to play out later on. And then the final scene is uh, the X-Wing pilot gives uh, Cara Dune 
uh, an opportunity to join the New Republic because they're like, you know, uh, the empire is resurgent and all that. And that's also been one of my favorite plot points in the Timothy, Timothy Zahn novels is that you can't just kill the emperor and think that's the end of the empire. Mm-hmm. There's always factions. There's always going to be parts of the infrastructure that he built that are still trying to do what he was trying to do, which is rule the galaxy. Because just because he's gone, that's not the end of it. So I like that too, because that's, that's you know, real life. It's why we still deal with elements of World War II, even to this day, because the thinking is still around. You may have taken out the leaders, but the way certain people think is still here, still here to this day. So that's really true to life. Uh, so I liked it about that. Okay, so that's pretty much it. This was a good episode, and it's a great setup for the rest of the season, for all the things that are coming later. There's uh, a lot of things that are planted in this episode that are paid off as other episodes play out. So we're going to have a lot of fun going over that in our next two uh, pods. So you guys, uh, give me some closing thoughts. Anything you want to throw before we end up? Start with Bracey. Well, first of all, we are the OGs. That means the uh, the original geeks. So uh, don't forget that out there. Nah, and nah, just, nah, nah. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, just to show the power of the original uh, series still, I, recently today on TikTok, I watched a video of what looked like a, maybe a five- or six-year-old girl sitting with her dad on a couch and they're playing the scene. They're watching. They're watching the Empire Strikes Back, and you know the the infamous line comes up like, "Did Obi Wan tell you what happened to my father?" Like, hey, he said you killed him. He's like, "No, I am your father." And the look on her face, the shock and horror at that revelation, <laughs> even with a whole new generation, it still resonates to a girl that young. Her little mind just got blown. Take that to heart, people out there who are handling Star Wars. Take that to heart. Now, Lucas isn't the best writer out there in the world. He's not the best uh, director in the world, but he's a damn fine creator. And, you know, and I know he didn't write uh, Empire, but like he, he planted the seeds of it. Follow, follow Filoni, follow Favreau, follow that seeds, grow a new tree from that soil, and you can't miss. Cool. Right. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to add. I I will kind of say that, you know, in a way, you know, this whole generational uh, transfer of Star Wars, we're seeing that on The Mandalorian as well, because, you know, um, Filoni was a a direct apprentice of Lucas when they worked on The Clone Wars together. And and you can definitely tell that there is a real affection between the two of them. And Mm -hmm. Filoni just wants to make a show that George would love to see. And you can kind of tell that it, it and Favreau is the same way. He also worked very briefly on the Clone Wars. I think it was season four. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about these people that work for Lucas and, and saw what Lucasfilm was before Disney acquired it, these are people who remember what that was like. And they are bringing together, you know, a show of the old vision, you know, um, trying to fit in with the new canon and trying to make it their own in the way that Lucas did before. 
So, you know, the idea of honoring the previous generation while making it fresh and new, that that's the challenge. And that and they've done that with the Mandalorian. And I and and I and I think also it's one of those things that you can bring also, you know, to the new generation and have them enjoy it in the same way. And and this is what we want to preserve, you know, and this is what the you know, people like the Ryan Johnsons don't get and what they're actively been been trying to undermine, you know, is that spirit uh, that that has been uh, passed down uh, of the old Lucasfilm. And what I'm hoping will stick around and uh, hopefully will continue uh, through, you know, future seasons of the show and other shows that they're doing, uh, Rangers of the New Republic, um, The Bad Batch, uh, you know, the animated series and and things like that. Hopefully that's the vision that prevails. Hopefully, hopefully, <clears throat> because they have so much new content coming out. We've kind of been spoiled by The Mandalorian. We want to see that content be as good as what we've seen here. Uh, final thoughts, Nemesis? Yeah, I'm just going to close. Uh, you guys hit on, on everything. I'm just going to close um, on this point. Earlier, we talked about fan service and something that was just mentioned uh in passing because we spent so much time on on my little uh tangent that i got us off on was uh the tracker placed in the razor crest and that is such an example of great fan service that is mm-hmm. homage to the fans immediately when i saw that for us old you know for us uh original gangsters uh that takes us back to grand moff tarkin looking at vader and saying you're we're taking an awful risk here you know that is going straight back to episode four while at the same time exposing a new generation to what is going on and 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 it was beautifully done and it was an homage i i fervently believe that and i appreciated it so in my mind that is a perfect example of fan service working the way it should work awesome awesome on that note we'll wrap this episode up Thank you so much to all of you listeners. And I want to give uh, thanks to my co-host. Thank you so much, Nemesis. No problem. Always great discussion. This was just an incredibly cool, nerdy discussion. We went off all over the place, and I loved it. So, <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, I really uh, dug this episode as well, and I hope you guys will too. And until then, this is the way. Cool. This is the way. Thank you so much, Bracey. I'll tell you, people out there at Lucasfilm, if you can keep delivering things like this, the fans will come back. I have spoken. <laughs> May he rest in peace. Thank you, so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, folks, for listening. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. And we're out. Cool. Hey, if any of you guys looked at the... uh